Welcome to Gold Star Classroom, the podcast where our panelists go back to school. We'll grade them on their answers to a variety of general knowledge and trivia questions. They don't know what we're going to ask, and we don't know what they're going to say. The student with the highest grade at the end of the class will win the coveted classroom prize, the Golden Banana. I'm your host and headmaster, Professor Jerry Jaffe. Welcome to today's episode of Gold Star Classroom. I'm your host and headmaster, Dr. Jerry Jaffe. It is my pleasure to introduce to you today's students. Sitting on my right, Associate Professor of Biology at Lake Erie College, Dr. Zane Johnson. Good to be here, Dr. Jaffe. Well, thanks for joining us today. Sitting directly across from me is a graduate student who's the assistant manager at the, his county's last remaining independent bookstore, Nick Grimzik. Pleased to be here. Thanks for coming. And sitting on my left is the, did you say editor? Yes. Editor of Free Inquiry Magazine and Wandering Miscreant, Tom Flynn. Good to be with you and good day part. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, as with all of my classes, I'm going to be testing you on a series of topics across the width and breadth of human learning. And as any good teacher would, I will be grading your answers. I'm lost. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm here to guide you. Will there be opportunities for extra credit? There will be extra credit opportunities. You don't actually have to do the reading or study for anything. Just oh, go for the extra credit. <laughs> Just go for the extra credit. All right. I wanted to start in the world of fantasy. There's a mythical beast that also shares its name with a very standard piece of architecture. Does anyone glean what I'm referring to? The Sphinx? No, although I like your guess, so five <laughs> points for effort. Oh, all right. Uh, this particular piece, uh, architectural feature is, is, is not exclusive to Gothic art, but it is most famous gargoyle. in Gothic art. Gargoyle. Oh, I saw right, right. Tom and Zane both running for gargoyle, but <laughs> Zane nipped you at the post. So, 10 points for Zane. Gargoyles are most, uh, as an architectural feature, known for, with medieval architecture, but they actually are older than that. Do you know how far back we find gargoyle-like features in architecture? And gar they're just kind of like genuinely like just the ugliest little water spots you could possibly make. <laughs> I don't, that's a pretty vague thing. How um, specifically, gar like the classic squat little thing with demon horns and little wings? What I like about your comment, Nick, is that you use the phrase water spout. So you get a gold star. Oh, fantastic. Because to be a gargoyle as an architectural feature, you must be a water spout. <laughs> other types of ornamentation have other names for what they are. Oh, so the gargoyles are just the water spouts. They're just the water really? spouts, yes. So you recall seeing somewhere that the, the ancient Egyptians had something like that. 10 points for Tom, the oldest known decorative water spouts for Egyptians and Greeks and Romans uh, might have been other animals, not that sort of monster, grotesque monster, but these sort of decorative animal water spouts go back to the Egyptians. That is correct. Hmm. Um, Amazing, since the Egyptians probably only needed them when the Nile was flooding. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a generic term for any architectural feature that is just a protrusion, even a decorated doorknob bar, any little decorative flare on the side of a building or in a ceiling. A buttress? No, not a, a buttress. Um, but I'll give you a point because it also starts with the letter B. Ooh. 
This balustrade. Is not balustrade? No, not a balustrade. I'm just saying words from history that start, start with B, B. now. <laughs> <laughs> but no. <laughs> Napoleon Bo Bonaparte. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> boss features. Uh, a boss feature is any architectural feature that sort of protrudes and is decorative or ornamental. Gar the word gargoyle is an interesting word. Do you know what it, word it's derived from or what its root word is? What language it comes from? Gorgons, like Medusas and... Not directly, some, okay. but there's some, in mythology, there's some overlap, but not in the word origin itself. Okay. Right. Not in the word origin itself. Well, the last time I had a sore throat, my doctor told me to gargoyle, but I don't think that's appropriate. <laughs> not only is it appropriate, you should get like 25 extra points oh, just Whoa. for that. It comes wow. from the French word, which in English is sometimes translated as uh, throat or gullet. But oh. the French word comes from the Latin word for gurgling or gargling. So, in fact, the word gargoyle is derived from the word for gargle. Which was essentially what they were doing, spouting out water <laughs> yes. from the roof. The grotesque, monstrous gargoyles that we associate with Gothic churches and architecture um, do not come from mythology like Medusa or some okay. other Ro Greek or Roman mythology. However, around the time that they started appearing as an architectural feature, a mythological story also appeared. Uh, and it figure. sort of got dovetailed together in the popular mm -hmm. imagination. I wonder, uh, well, uh, I'll, as an open field question, anyone know the famous legend of the gargoyle? What the original gargoyle monster was? What the story behind it was? Not I. I will give you a clue then. It is related to one of the admittedly more obscure saints. There's a story of a saint, supposedly from the 600s, who hunted this vicious monster. And the vicious monster in the saint story is basically described as a reptile with bat wings, and so is considered a dragon. Hmm. I mean, but Usually we associate the dragon with St. George, but he's not obscure. Correct. It's not St. George's story. Um, and also... Uh, I know there, there may be uh, Jesuit-trained scholars at the table. I myself don't know all the saints that well. I, but I will say uh, this saint is much more obscure <laughs> right. than St. George, uh, sort of a medieval saint that has sort of um, faded from popular imagination. Uh, saint Romanus. You're right. That's obscure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't mess as, around. As the token Jesuit-trained scholar, <laughs> I heard of St. Hyacinth. I heard of St. Gwyndefort. Never heard of that one. He, um, you don't pray to that guy when you lose your glasses or something. Just. <laughs> According to the legend, when he finally defeated the gargoyle dragon, the only person who would help him was a condemned man who volunteered to step forth and help him. And because of that, for many years in the medieval period, on St. Romanus's day, a condemned man would be let free. Oh. So there was that custom. We did mention that a gargoyle, as an architectural feature, is a water spout. There's a separate word for architectural features which depict other grotesque animals but are essentially decorative. Uh, what's interesting about this word is that it also, Nick, is a wor this word is derived from Greek and Roman mythology. Okay. But I don't know if you know this word for this other type of architectural feature. Is it Gorgon? Not Gorgon, but Gorgon is an example of this broader class of monster. Um, any Greek or Roman monster that was a uh, created by combining animal parts. Chimeras. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Chimeras. Ten points for Dr. Zane Johnson. <laughs> chimera, that is correct. And a chimera is also the name for an architectural feature that is decoratively grotesque, but does not function as a water spout or necessarily any other practical function, primarily ornamental or decorative. We keep describing- Is there a fancy science word for like racist lawn jockeys? <laughs> that you still see in older neighborhoods? <laughs> I don't know what the problem with this is. I, I like him. <laughs> My grandfather gave that to me. It's a family heirloom. <laughs> um, there is a word for that. Um, we've used the word um, for gargoyles and some of these associated features. The word grotesque has come up two or three times. And I think we could use the word grotesque for that as well. Certainly. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But the word grotesque is itself, does itself have an architectural, like, specific definition. Um, do you know what a grotesque is in architecture? Any thoughts ever come across this? I've seen some buildings like that. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of them were built in the 70s. Oh, yeah. We may be sitting in one of them as we speak. Oh, there's some grotesque stuff in that library over there. There's uh, <laughs> real questionable decisions. Anyway. Well, the word um, grotesque, is, it's in the arts. It's a little broader than just architecture. So it can be applied to architecture, but it can be applied across the arts for any, um, What's a, there's a good phrase here that I jotted down in my lesson plan. I want to see if I can. Any ornamental feature in architecture or other arts that is primarily extravagant and or pitiful in design. And the word grotesque was developed sort of in the medieval period to describe Roman art. Ah. Uh, so grotesque architecture is actually like a subgenre of Roman architecture. Um, although, as a type of art, it's still used in other contexts. So now I understand why the word grotesque is so often applied to describe uh, uh, Transformers movies, for example. Yes, <laughs> indeed, that's a perfect example. Plus right. 10 points. <laughs> Plus 10 points for a good example. One more question about gargoyles. We've been, you know, they have a, like, aesthetic value, and then they have this, especially gargoyles, they're gutters, so they're doing something practical. Romans would build gargoyles into their aqueduct system. They were part of the water drainage across the aqueduct system. But they are supposed to have, according to legend, one other purpose, one other widely accepted explanation for why we have gargoyles on buildings. Anyone know what that legend to is supposed to be? scare away the pigeons. <laughs> to <The> frighten <laughs> evil spirits. We have a winner. <laughs> that, that's the A-plus answer. It's that Jesuit uh, training coming through again. <laughs> to frighten evil spirits away. Um, and especially with its association with Gothic architecture, that included, by the way, witches. That supposedly would scare away witches or other evil spirits. Big problem in the Middle Ages, witches. Yes. <laughs> All over the place. Well, they must they have couldn't kill them fast enough. Well, they must have done a good job because I've never met a witch in the 21st century. So <laughs> I wonder if they got them all. Thank goodness. There is a technical word for that kind of um, voodoo or magic that you think keeps evil away. You know the technical word? Uh, warding. A warding is another synonym, so I'll give you five points. But this word is much more technical than that. It's a kind of thing that either... Uh, historians, philosophers, or in fact people who practice Wicca or other magic-based belief systems, you will use this word to describe the, the act of creating wards or other artifacts or spells that will keep evil away. The tragedy is that on a podcast, no one can hear me shrug. <laughs> <laughs> I wish my students at home right now could see Tom shrug, though. It is a thing of beauty, <laughs> a thing that almost transcends the senses and you can appreciate. 
as it is, is truly grotesque. <laughs> <laughs> See, in my experience, where high school students who practice Wicked Go to escape from the evil in their lives, it's called an anime club. <laughs> <laughs> I don't they, they've been known to <clears throat> congregate at Hot Topic. Although I would like to point out Hot Topic is in no way a sponsor of this program. Right. And especially won't be now. <laughs> <laughs> Apotropaic magic. That's the technical word. Wow. Apotropaic magic. This program is educational. Yeah, Heck wow. yeah. You find me another podcast where they are explaining <laughs> the relationship between apotropaic magic, gargoyles, and ancient Roman architecture. Apotropaic. Yes. You can see. Wow. Hope you're watching this at home. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're all reading my lesson plan right now. For <laughs> we'll spell it out for you at the end. As the um, great Stephen Fry once noted, <clears throat> having a great intellect is no path to being happy. And, and I feel like this is a class full of happy people. You can go a I, lot of ways with that. I, <laughs> I, wow. I'm going to tear down your illusions. That's fine. <laughs> I'll tear down your illusions. It's what I do for a living. <laughs> That's why we invited you here. Um, and that is such a charitable suggestion of yours. Uh, I thought I, well, I was recently um, came across the 2012 report by the National Phil Philanthropic Trust, and it's full of statistics about American charitable giving. Hmm. And since this is something that you often hear people make claims about and is misinformation about, uh, we would see if you know the at least according to this relatively reliable source, the kinds of statistics and amounts of money that are circulating around American charities. My first question is, do you have a guesstimate for the percentage of households in America that give to charity? Like reported or actual? Well, this is on the, according to the National Philanthropic Trust, and so it's okay. considered relatively accurate okay. number. So we're looking for like the real number. The not real number. Not, I'm going to say 65%. Like, not, what, not what people put on their income tax returns. <laughs> right. I, unless that's where they derived this number from. I, I didn't fact check the facts. I just went with this report. <laughs> We have one offer on the table of 65%. We're going realism. I'm going to say like 25, <laughs> oh. maybe not even that much. Uh, yeah. I, I, I was going to go with something at or below 15%. Yeah. According to the National Philanthropic Trust's 2012 report, 95% of households give to charities. Uh, hold on, because what, what do we consider a charity? <laughs> do we consider writing off a check to some actual philanthropic organization charity, or does somebody consider giving pocket change to the Salvation Army guy next to the Walgreens at Christmas time. Is that charity? I, I think you've got to lump that in to get to 95%. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. Um, it is actually uh, interesting you would bring that up because one of the controversies around about evaluating American charities is you'll often hear it said um, by, say, talking heads or commentators that Americans give the most money in charity to charity. And there's probably ways to make that true, but uh, it's been pointed out by... Um, international agencies that even though America will describe itself that way, they actually do not give as much money to the poor or the hungry or those types of charities. Americans give a lot of money to like the symphony, uh, to alumni associations, which NRA. are all worthy causes by the way, <laughs> but nonetheless this part of what, I don't want to say inflates this figure, but is that it includes all types of charitable giving, not shall we say only sort of need-based mm -hmm. charitable giving. And I do have, um, in 2013, there were four major areas that charitable dollars went to. 
I wonder if you can somewhat guesstimate what those four areas might be. Well, I know the largest one is going to be religion. You are correct, sir. Over 30% was religion. Uh, there's three more categories. Uh, senators, congresspeople. Yeah, or would, would we count <laughs> political donations? I'm going to as say charity. Uh, based on the statistics I have, they're not counting political okay, donations okay. as charities. Uh, really. Arts organizations, then. Um, arts organizations is not a category in the breakdown here that I'm giving. I have okay, other statistics but, about giving to arts organizations, okay. but they do have grant-making foundations. All right. That yeah. was actually the fourth largest, with 11 percent. One huh. one area that I think of is charities related to animal causes, animal welfare causes. Yeah, I'm going to say that's not going to be in the top four. Okay. Oh, about education? That is number two, sir. Oh. Another 10 points for Tom. Did I mention that I work at a nonprofit organization? <laughs> I'll sit back now okay. and let others. You know. Well, so does Dr. Johnson. <laughs> and if you work at a bookstore, so do you. Oh, we can, we can make that argument again. <laughs> But, uh, I will know. say the fourth category, is, it's kind of the vaguest, really, but it's just human services. Okay. Um, okay. Is what they called the fourth one. Um, how, uh, in dollar amounts, what's the average annual household contribution? And again, this is an average. You can imagine there's a few families right. that give a lot and maybe Some many don't give that much. Then, uh, okay. But the average across that 95% of wow. people, or households, I should say, 95% of households. This is, is a guess, but I'm going to say $600. $600. It is a little more than that. Oh, it, that's more than what, 6000 No, he said, Six, Tom 600. said 600 600 Oh, okay. Yeah, cause that's got to be a huge number, because that's, you know, we got to figure between, you know, old money people giving millions and millions of dollars sure. to their yeah. old universities, and, you know, somebody gets well, 20 bucks at the office. Yes. Yeah, so. I, Don't forget I, that nickel in the salvation. Do you want to put in a guess, <laughs> No, I, 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 I was just going to mention that the, the mean and the median are probably quite different <laughs> on something like this. <laughs> um, and I assure you, my students listening at home understand that statement. Yeah. <laughs> and our ratings just dwindled. Yeah. <laughs> the, our, our mean ratings are our medium ratings, our average rating. Uh, it's approximately $3,000 is the average. How about the total? Americans gave X number of dollars. I'll give you a clue. It is in the billions. Oh, billions, really? In yeah. the year 2013. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, 120. 120 billion we have on the table. More or less. This is the whole country for a whole year, including the old money and the top one percenters right. and all of that. 20 billion. You're both way under, by the way. Hmm. Damn. But he's more under than I am. Yeah. <laughs> to make that clear. Yes. To make it clear, <laughs> it's uh, over 300 billion. The figure here is wow. 335 billion oh. was given by Americans in the year 2013. I would like to take this opportunity to point out that the Gold Star Classroom's website does have a donate button on it. So, <laughs> uh. so feel free to, to so we, check that out. We want our slice. <laughs> you could you could use a less wobbly table. <laughs> <laughs> we got the table we can afford. You get the table you deserve. I have been told by um, Thomas Jefferson. No, I've been advised <laughs> plus five points just for mentioning Thomas Jefferson. I've been told that sometimes my style of teaching involves a little too much constructive criticism, and I should do more to build up my students. So I have here in my hand a list of 101 random ways to praise students, and I would just like to tell you guys that you're spectacular. Ah. <laughs> uh. 
I feel narcissistic now. <laughs> I'm motivated to achieve. <laughs> <laughs> and so you should be. I'd like to spend a few more minutes on a topic that uh, my students listening at home will know is one of my favorites, uh, dear to my heart, and maybe you'll know something about this, or maybe we'll educate the people listening. Uh, and that is on the topic of William Shakespeare. And I have some Shakespeare trivia. I have two main questions I'm going to ask you. The first question has to do with this. Amongst Shakespearean scholars and bardolatry, there's a lot of debate about the ordering of the plays, like when they came out, when they were written. But you can find standard lists that most scholars will more or less agree on. What is usually considered the first play by Shakespeare? Does anyone know or have a guess? I would guess it would be one of the history ones where he's got to, you know, appeal to somebody and build up his bankroll <laughs> first before he can go on to the vanity projects. Like. <laughs> you know, you, there's a kind of a logic to what you're saying, but you've taken it in the wrong direction. Oh. If you want to appeal to the masses and make your producers happy, oh, what would you, you write? You, you need comedy. Correct. Yeah, Correct. Right. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm several of first. I'm going to go with comedy of errors. Um, I'll give you a few points, pity points, because that is, that is one of his earlier plays. Okay. It's generally put in the top five or top three, uh, of earliest five or earliest three. So, um, and there was a time when it was considered possibly the first one, but the more up-to-date list has it around third or fourth. I was thinking it was one of his really dismal histories, Coriolanus or one of those. Um, he, one of his other earlier plays was Titus Andronicus. Ah, that's, a, that's the one I Which is considered a little bit derivative of Marlowe and also quite sensationally violent. Um, along That's with a good Hank. way to get people in the seats, though, yes. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is usually dated at 1589, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, ah. which is another comedy, and in some ways similar to Comedy of Errors, by the way. There's some similar plot points and characters to it. Titus Andronicus is, is a remarkable play. I mean, among other things, it marks the first appearance in Elizabethan literature of the Gatling gun. I do not recall that off the top of my head, except in the film. Uh, well, yes, yes. of course. <laughs> yeah, the Abrams remake in particular. Yes. <laughs> you, you had me going there for a second, Tom. <laughs> Plus 10 points. Yeah. Plus 10 points. I was literally like going through that play suddenly in my head. Gatling yes. gun. It, it's all in the deadpan. Right. <laughs> you had me. You, you were reeling me in on that one. Um, and one other aspect, um, educated folk like all of us here, if we were to name like a famous play like Macbeth or Hamlet, maybe you've seen it, maybe you've read it, but my question would be, do you, do you know who like the main character is? In a lot of these plays, it's the title character like Macbeth or Hamlet. But of course, in these plays, there are other important characters. So I'm not talking about minor characters or extras, but just that maybe they don't have the same name recognition as Hamlet or Macbeth or Romeo or Juliet. Now, can you check your computer because you keep saying Macbeth inside the theater where we're shooting this, and that's... <laughs> I got hella superstition drummed in my head about that for oh. all my training. Mm. Well, Tom and I are here to banish superstition. Oh, okay. <laughs> so later we're going to shatter a mirror and walk under a ladder and open umbrellas in here. And, right. then, and then eat a black cat. <laughs> um, which play has an important character in it called Duncan? That's Macbeth. Uh, yeah, that's I got so, you to say it. Son yeah. of a... Yeah, <laughs> Gold star and two for bravery. My own arrogance. Yeah. Which, which, and these are all, by the way, pretty famous plays, so I'm not using any of the obscure ones. These are all, the answers are play titles you've heard of. Hmm. Which famous Shakespearean play has an char important character in it called Cassio? Uh, Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? No. No. Cassio. I'm wrong. Uh, 
And uh, Julius Caesar has a character called Cassius. In fact, there's. Well, I, I knew that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> One guy's name start with yeah. Cassius something, yeah. but Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. Um, Othello. No. Nope. Cassio is the lieutenant that Othello is jealous of, um, and thinks that Desdemona might be, you know, having also the her inventor of the synthesizer. Also, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which first appeared in the play, <laughs> Othello. Um, how about oh. Tybalt? That's, That's Romeo and yeah, Juliet. And then Nick Juliet. got it in first, but yeah, you were all yeah, on the right vibe by time. The main yeah. cousin. Yes. Um, Juliet. The mean cousin. cousin yes. The, uh, the mean cousin. Hella sword fighting. Yeah. Right. Not to be confused with the median cousin. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 one, the one who kills Mercutio. No spoilers. <laughs> Which play has a character, important character in it called Caliban? The Tempest. Correct. Dr. Zane, right on it. Um, one of my favorite characters, but often sort of overlooked, but a major character, not a minor character. Which play has a character in it called Bianca? She is the sister to one of the main characters, in fact, the title character. Oh, The Taming of the Shrew. Correct. Right. Taming mm. of the Shrew. The one they were actually into. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Who ironically turned out to be the mo more the shrew by the end. <laughs> That's the irony. Hmm. The irony. In some ways, this is going to better than I probably was allowed to expect it to go. So I'll try to end with just one more. This is an important character. What play is the character Cordelia in? King Lear. King Lear. Tom finally got one. <laughs> Good job, Tom. All I right. knew that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to give my computer five points for not crashing while we were doing this recording. Um, I'm going to now calculate your grades and determine the winner of today's classroom prize, the coveted golden banana. But before I can finalize your grades, I'm going to give you one more chance to improve your grades through extra credit, Dr. Mm -hmm. Johnson. Oh, boy. And extra credit takes the form of me giving you a topic and then you sharing a fact about that topic. And whoever gives the most interesting fact gets the most bonus points. And today's topic is astronomy. Who has an interesting astronomy fact? Uh, we're currently observing four copies of a supernova explosion, the same supernova explosion, okay. slightly offset in time by means of gravitational lensing imposed by intervening galaxies. Uh, I can confirm this. That's, I just read the story that's, yesterday that's really, as well. That's really good. That is really good. I mean, you can't make up stuff uh, like that. Right, right. And, uh, one of the reasons it's being, or one of the, I should say, one of the ways it's being reported is via the lens of Albert Einstein. Ah, uh, yes. That's, it's all like, not that it needs confirmation <laughs> at this point, but it, it's functioning. We understand how it's functioning because we understand Einstein's explanation of gravity and it, And not on only Einstein. Einstein, but many of his relatives. Yes. <laughs> um, and the maker of pretty decent bagel. <laughs> Nick and Zane, do you have any interesting, interesting facts about astronomy for astronomy our students facts. listening at home? Pretend like your grade depends upon it, which it does. The last time I was at the Natural Museum of History, the Museum of Natural History in Cleveland, they still had like a pretty sizable display about Pluto. Like they weren't <laughs> drawing a lot of attention to it, but it was still there. And I feel like they could have at least thrown a tarp over it or something. Doesn't I understand they maybe don't have a huge budget, but I don't have to read. What does it cost to roll something out of the room? Redo the really? entire thing, but just 
anyhow. Mm. One, one thing that comes to mind for me is it's not recent news, but Voyager, which is, mm -hmm. which was supposedly several years ago supposed to have reached the heliopause of our solar system and thus demarcating its outer boundary, yes. several years after the fact still has not reached that <laughs> heliopause as of yet. <laughs> that heliopause is a capricious thing. <laughs> and it's, it, which is also putting off Voyager's destiny of meeting the Borg and then coming back to Earth as V'ger and then threatening the safety of the entire planet. But saving the whales in the process. <laughs> but subsequently saving the whales in the process. It's a very convoluted story full of twists and turns and Einsteinian physics of some description. And, and then Vulcan implodes or it doesn't. And, and, and gravitational lensing. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your extra credit comments, having taken them into account. The winner of today's coveted classroom <laughs> prize, the Golden Banana, with the highest grade in the class, is Mr. Tom Flynn. Thank you. Thank you. I'm privileged. I'd like to thank all the little people who made it possible. You and you. Um, and that just remains for me, your teacher, to thank you, my students, Dr. Johnson. Thank you yes, for coming to class yes, today and for your good attendance policies. Yeah. Yes, thank you. And Nick? Thank you. I wasn't expecting to learn this much on a Thursday. You? That's, uh, you oh, are... no, I, I'm throwing out times again. I'm, I apologize. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to learn much, period, <laughs> today. Like many of my students. <laughs> and thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure being here with you whenever and wherever we are. <laughs> thank you. Well, it just remains for me to say thank you to our students listening at home. and. I'm, as always, your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe. Thank you. Gold Star Classroom is written and produced by Jerry Jaffe. Our producer and engineer is Stephen Gutierrez. Original music composed and produced by Jeff Geddert. Mr. Geddert is also our assistant producer. All commentary and opinions expressed by guests of Gold Star Classroom are meant for entertainment purposes only. For Gold Star Classroom, I'm Jerry Jaffe.